And does anyone happen to know? Everybody likes it. <laughs> yes, Rob. That's a really good guess. <laughs> a hockey team to an answer to my questions. Close. But does anyone happen to know what Sir Richard Branson did last Sunday? They went to space. Very good, yes. For those of you who don't know who he is, he's the billionaire founder of the Virgin Company, Virgin Records. But last week, last Sunday, as a private citizen, he went up into space. He was a passenger in the back of the Unity rocket plane that his Virgin Galactic Company had been developing within the United States over the past two decades. The rocket, it climbed to 295,000 feet, giving those on board just a few minutes of weightlessness and a view of the curvature of the earth. How cool would that be, right? How many of you would want an interest in taking a flight like that? Okay, yeah. Well, you're not alone. Uh, over 600 individuals have already lodged deposits for future rides. And you know how much a ticket costs? Yes. Someone's reading the news here. <laughs> Someone's reading the news. Duncan is a well-informed individual. He said, tickets go for $250,000. Now, if, if you can't afford a flight to get a space-side view of the Earth, uh, you can always log on to Google Earth, right? While the experience might not be the same, the view is pretty similar though, correct? In fact, and pilots will tell you this, one of the benefits of flight or Google Earth is that you can see and notice certain things you're unable to observe while on the ground. For example, when my wife and I moved here 19 years ago, and here's your hockey illustration, Rob, uh, moved here 19 years ago, I left all my hockey equipment with my parents because I figured there were no ice rinks nearby. Yet, had I had a bird's eye or space eye view from where our apartment was, I'd have quickly seen that the ice rink was literally less than two miles from our apartment. But I was unable to see that just right on the ground. Having a bird's eye view, if you will, it helped me see things you're unable to notice while on the ground. Well, the same principle applies when studying the Bible, especially when it comes to historical narrative. What I mean is, as important as it is to closely examine each tree, we also need to take a step back and consider where such tree fits within the entire forest. And that's what I actually would like to do this morning. You see, this morning we come to the final chapter in 1 Samuel, and that's 1 Samuel 31. And at first glance, this short chapter, it's only 13 verses long, at first glance, this short chapter appears only to recount the tragic death of Saul and nothing more. Yet when we take a step back, or you could say take a flight up, and we survey how this fits within the overall story of 1 Samuel, we quickly discover, I'm going to argue, 
that the author has intended this recounting of Saul's death to be a didactic death. That is, I want to argue, 1 Samuel 31 is meant not simply to inform God's people, but to instruct God's people. And what is it that we are to learn from this chapter? What is it that we're to be instructed on? Well, I believe it's simply this, and this is what I'm going to argue. We could summarize that this chapter presses upon our hearts this truth, and that is the need to heed God's word because it does not fail. Heed God's word because it does not fail. This, we could say, is the summary sentence of the final chapter of 1 Samuel. Heed God's word because it does not fail. This is to say, everything God's word promises, everything God's word teaches on, everything that God speaks about is true. It comes to pass. It does not fail. When we last left Saul in 1 Samuel 28, Saul was doing something he ought not be doing. Do you remember what that was? What was Saul doing? He was consulting a medium, the witch at Endor. Remember this? And do you remember, why was Saul doing something God's word clearly forbid? Why was he seeking out the witch at Endor? You recall he was doing so because he was afraid. He was terrified that the Philistines were coming upon him and he didn't know what to do. So as we looked at in 1 Samuel 28, in a unique situation, God allowed the deceased prophet Samuel to once again speak to Saul from the grave. And do you remember what Saul said? I'm sorry. Do you remember what Samuel said to Saul? He told him many things, one of them being the same thing he said to Saul when Samuel was alive back in chapter 15, and that is, Saul, God has rejected you because you have rejected the word of God. Remember this? But that's not all Samuel said. Samuel also told Saul on that dark night that in the following morning, Saul and all his sons would die in battle. Indeed, Samuel also told Saul that the Lord would give the army of Israel into the hand of the Philistines. Right? That was in chapter 28. Now here in chapter 31, you know what we see happening? Precisely that. Everything that Samuel said would happen happens in the chapter we're going to look at this morning. Israel falls on Gilboa. Saul falls on his sword. But the word of the Lord does not fall. It has and always will come to pass. Friend, please hear me. What God says is true and it will not fail. Yet what you have to understand is that the main takeaway from this final chapter is not simply 
the truth that God's word will not fail, as true and as important as that statement is. No, as we're about to see, by masterfully highlighting certain locations and people, I believe the author wants us to actually heed God's word, the very thing Saul failed to do. The author is pressing upon our hearts to heed God's word. That is, to be careful to listen and obey it. Because you see, when we take a step back or a flight up, like I said, in 1 Samuel 31, and we see this chapter in light of the major themes and threads throughout this book, I'm going to argue that Saul's death, it actually gives us three reasons why we ought to heed God's word. This is to say, in the retelling of Saul's death, the author, I want to argue, insightfully illustrates three particular truths from God's word that always come to pass. Three truths that we would be really wise to heed. Three truths that both Israel and Saul failed to heed. So if you haven't already, I'd invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Samuel 31. That's page 252 in that paperback Bible in the seat in front of you. And as you're turning there, let me give you the context. Since 1 Samuel 28, David, the shepherd boy, David has taken center stage in this narrative, and to be honest with you, it has not been pretty, has it? You'll recall that after sparing Saul's life once again, David said to himself, you know what? It would be really good if me and my men went back to the Philistines to stay with King Achish there in Gath. So that's what David did he and his men, they returned to Gath and Achish. And Achish, you recall, gave David and his men an entire town. Remember what the name was? Very good, yes, Ziklag. He gave them the entire town of Ziklag. And they stayed there for 16 months. Yet here's the interesting thing. During that entire time that David and his men were staying in Ziklag, they made continual raids against the enemies of Israel. And they killed everyone, men, women, everyone, so that word would not get back of what they're doing. But this is what David did. While staying in Ziklag and making all these raids against the enemies of Israel, he was telling the king of Gath, Achish, that he was doing this on behalf of the Philistines in fighting the Philistine armies. David was lying. He was deceiving King Achish. And in fact, David was so good at tricking and deceiving Achish, that Achish then says, hey, you know what, David? Us Philistines, we're getting ready to fight Israel. I want you to come join us. Not only that, Achish then said to David, David, I want you to be my bodyguard for life. And as we're reading this narrative, we're wondering how in the world is David going to get out of this dilemma, this problem that he created by his own lying? And you'll recall how that episode in David's life, we looked at it in chapter 29, it illustrated this truth, and that is, you need deliverance from yourself, not through yourself. 
David, as much as he is a type of Christ, and we've talked about this through our study of 1 Samuel, he's also an example of failure. And David, as he deceives himself and backs himself into this corner, we learned that I want to argue and illustrate this important gospel truth. Friend, you need deliverance from you, not through you. Well, in the following chapter, we discover that David has a change of heart. You remember he returns to Ziklag only to found Ziklag burned to the ground and everyone kidnapped. It was arguably the worst day in David's life. And you remember what we learned from that text. I believe it impressed upon our hearts this truth, and that is to strengthen yourself in a generous God. And that chapter gave us three reasons why we ought to do that. Now, why am I taking the time to remind you of all this? I'm doing it so for this reason. Chronologically, while David is strengthening himself in the Lord... Once God delivered him out of that predicament, he made himself get in with the lies. As David is strengthening himself in the Lord and plundering the Amalekites and sending gifts to his men in various cities, while that's happening, Saul is experiencing the final moments of his life. 1 Samuel 31 takes place the morning after Saul's encounter with the witch at Endor. And faith, here's the first lesson, the first reason why we ought to heed God's word. And that is because God's word does not fail concerning the impotence of idols. Follow along with me as I read the first seven verses of chapter 31. We read this. Again, this is the morning after. Now the Philistines were fighting against Israel. And the men of Israel fled before the Philistines and fell slain on Mount Gilboa. And the Philistines overtook Saul and his sons. And the Philistines struck down Jonathan and Abinadab and Malachshua, the sons of Saul. Now, I want to say one of the saddest things is right there that Jonathan died. And we're going to talk more about that next week when we look at the first chapter of 2 Samuel. But in a very terse way, the author's saying, everyone died. But notice how he describes Saul's death, verse 3. The battle pressed hard against Saul, and the archers found him, meaning he was shot, and he was badly wounded by the archers. Then Saul said to his armor-bearer, Draw your sword and thrust me through with it, lest these uncircumcised come and thrust me through and mistreat me. Now, that phrase, uncircumcised fellows, that has only been used twice before in this book. The first time it was used is when Jonathan was about to defeat the Philistines in a very unlikely situation. All odds were against Jonathan but he said that the Lord's going to give him victory to defeat these uncircumcised fellows. The second time it was used was with David when he said he's going to defeat the Philistine giant, this uncircumcised fellow. But now notice what's happening here. Saul uses the same phrase, except he's not going to defeat the Philistines, but rather he himself is about to be defeated by the Philistines. 
And look what we see there in verse 5, or the rest of verse 4. So he asked his armor bearer to, to kill him, middle of verse 4, but his armor bearer would not, for he feared greatly. Therefore Saul took his own sword and he fell upon it. And when his armor bearer saw that Saul was dead, he also fell upon his sword and died with him. Thus Saul died and his three sons and his armor bearer and all his men on the same day together. You know what that verse is saying? God's word does not fail. This is exactly what the prophet Samuel said was going to happen, and it did. But it expands. Notice what happens to the cities of Israel. Verse 7, And when the men of Israel who were on the other side of the valley and those beyond the Jordan saw that the men of Israel had fled and that Saul and his sons were dead, they abandoned their cities and fled. And here's the final word of the prophecy that comes true. And the Philistines came and lived in them. Amen. This is God's word. Um, I don't listen to country music, at least not on purpose. But the other day, a country song caught, that my, caught my attention that was playing over the speakers at the gym. Uh, to, to no one's surprise, the song was about a woman that a man loved very, very much. How original. Never heard that before. But what caught my attention was this. After extolling this woman and literally singing her praises, the artist then says this. He says, don't get me wrong, I'm a God-fearing Christian man. And I was like, okay, I'm listening. Yeah. But then he says this, speaking of this woman, he says, but if you were a religion, I don't know what I'd do. Yeah, I might have to worship you. I might have to sing your praise. I might have to go to church, yeah, every single night and day. I would have to worship you. In other words, this man admits that although he professes devotion to God, his true object of worship is this woman. Well, faith, the same thing could be said about Israel in regards to Saul. Think for a moment. Again, let's just take a step back here and consider what's happening in light of the main story of 1 Samuel. Think about what Israel demanded in 1 Samuel chapter 8. What did they want? Do you remember? They wanted a king like the nations. They wanted a king who would fight for them in their battles. You see, although Israel claimed devotion to God, the true object of their worship was Saul. They wanted a king who would protect them. They were, please hear me, that's what they were relying on. They were relying on a king like the nations instead of God. Yet faith, friend, 
what God's word repeatedly teaches and what this final episode in Saul's life illustrates is that idols fail us. They're impotent. Because tell me, what do we see happening in the opening verses of chapter 31? What happened, what has happened to Israel's king like the nations? He has died. And more than that, think about this. The very thing Israel believed Saul would save them from. The who? The Philistines. He didn't. They defeated him and according to verse 7, and the Philistines came and lived in the cities. The Philistines take over. Friend, please hear me. Idols always, always, always fail us. In his excellent commentary on First and Second Samuel, Peter Lightheart makes the astute observation that in the Bible and in the ancient world, mountains were always associated or often associated with worship. Right? Normally, temples were built on high places like mountains, so mountains were associated with worship. Now, I, I do not want to read something into the text that isn't there, okay? So please hear that. However, I believe Lightheart's observation highlights an irony. Because tell me, where does Saul's final battle take place? Feel free to answer. On a mountain. And what do we see happening to Israel's idol in a location often associated with worship? It's being destroyed. Indeed, based on the graphic description we're about to read here, on Saul's death, you could even argue Saul's being sacrificed. Dale Ralph Davis says it best. He writes, Note that on Mount Gobola, also exposed the folly of Israel's idolatry. Israel had craved a king, salivated for royalty. They called it progress. The Lord named it idolatry. Chapter 31 shows where such trust brings a people. Some idols, like Dagon, lie shattered before the ark of the Lord. Others lie slain on Mount Gilboa. Faith, Israel claimed devotion to God, yet the true object of the worship, the thing that they were relying on for what they perceived to be their greatest need was Saul. They wanted a king who would protect them. Claimed devotion to God, but relied on other things. And I wonder, can we do the same thing? I know I can. And my guess is you can too. At one point during our time in the emergency room last Sunday morning, uh, the nurse uh, wheeled Luke away to get an MRI. And because they're doing some renovations at that part of Cosier's downtown, uh, we could not go with Luke to where he was getting his MRI. And instead, we had to stay back in the trauma room, trauma room alone, just Stephanie and I. And we were told that the MRI would take over an hour. 
Well, during that hour, Stephanie had her Bible with her. Remember, we just grabbed our stuff from here, and she had her Bible with her, and she turned her Bible and opened it to Psalm 20, verse 7, which reads this. It says, Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. Yet, as we sat alone in that trauma room, awaiting to hear the results of my son's MRI, you know what my heart wanted to do? It wanted to trust the chariots of medical professionals. In the worst way, it wanted to trust and rely on the horses of modern medicine. Now, don't get me wrong. Such medical advances are gifts from God. But as my wife said to me in that trauma room, we need to look to God in this moment and rely on Him. But I must confess to you, man, the pull of my heart, I wanted to hope in the chariots and the horses of modern medicine. It was a strong pull. And faith, I just want to argue, this is a pull we all have. A pull to rely on something other than God. So how can we guard our hearts from falling into the same sinful pattern as Israel? And so I want to just suggest a couple things. It's first, you know what it is? It's by reminding ourselves of what we see in this text. And what do we see in this text? Idols fail us every time. Don't be deceived into thinking otherwise. Nothing created can sustain you like the Creator. Friend, that person you are looking to, instead of God, to give you what only God can provide, that person will always fail you. Whatever you are leaning on, instead of the Lord, it will fail you. Man, let the gruesome death of Saul remind you of that. But then second, we must never domesticate idolatry as being some kind of benign, inconsequential sin. Think for a moment about what we are saying to God, about God, in our idolatry. It's the same thing Israel said to God. We're saying this, God you are not enough. You are insufficient for what I perceive I need. I'm going to rely on something else. God, take a back seat. You are not worthy of my devotion and allegiance. But this created thing is. Faith, please hear me. In our idolatry, we are treating God like a disposable cup that we find useful for a time and then we discard of it. Do you see how awful that is? How offensive that is? We ought not to speak of idolatry like a personality quirk. But instead, as a weighty and terrible transgression that we ought to be quick to confess and repent of. But then third, I want to argue the way we guard our hearts from idolatry, you know how we do that? 
is by reminding each other of these truths. And friend, this is where we need each other, not only in our community groups, but also corporately as a church. Brother and sister, I, I need you. And you need the person sitting next to you. We need each other to be a community of God's redeemed where we're reminding ourselves as our hymnody and our songs remind us that God alone is worthy of our full devotion and worship, not some created thing. And I cannot thank God enough for this church because I see you doing this faith. And I saw it on full display last week when the paramedics were wheeling my son away in an ambulance. And when Duncan and Karen were saying to us, the Lord is at hand, Wajnikis. When you are afraid, trust in the Lord. My heart needed that in that moment when I was experiencing the most frightening experience as a parent. And I praise God for you and this church and then the text messages that we have been receiving. We need each other to remind us of these things. Because my heart wanted to go elsewhere. And may we continue to spur one another on in this way. So faith, I commend you and to keep doing this. But then second, I want to argue from this passage. We ought to heed God's word because it does not fail concerning the perils of pride. Look at verses 8 through 12. And I believe the author brings this to our attention by highlighting the men of Jabesh Gilead. So the next day when the Philistines came to strip the slain, they found Saul there and his three sons fallen on Mount Gilboa. So they cut off his head and stripped off his armor and sent messengers through the land of the Philistines. Listen, listen to this phrase. This is an interesting phrase. To carry the good news to the house of their idols and to the people. They're proclaiming, oh, and how short-sighted they are to think that they had won. Verse 10, and they put his armor in the temple of the Eshtaroth, and they fastened his body to the wall at Beth Shean. But when the inhabitants of Jabesh Gilead heard what the Philistines had done to Saul, all the valiant men rose and went all night and took the body of Saul and the bodies of his sons down from the wall. Then they came to Jabesh and they burned them there. Uh, when we were teenagers, my brother Dave went on a ski trip to Mammoth Mountain in California with one of his buddies. And when they got to the top of one of the black diamonds, they, they took a picture. They wanted to capture just how steep and difficult this black diamond run was. However, when the camera roll got developed, yes, this was back, I don't know if you kids know this, <laughs> when we actually developed camera rolls, film, yes, I told you how old this was, but when they did that, um, 
and they got the pictures back, they realized in the pictures that the black diamond didn't look that steep and difficult. In fact, when I saw the picture, I gave them a hard time. I'm like, that looks like a bunny slope. Now, maybe, maybe you had a similar experience where you take a picture of something that's either majestic or steep, but it just, it just doesn't do it justice. You know what I'm talking about, right? Well, the following year, I joined my brother Dave and his buddy on a ski trip to Mammoth Mountain. And you know where the first place they took me? Guess. <laughs> they take me to that black diamond. They st- said it was steep. And you know what it was? It was However, I wasn't able to appreciate the drop of the run until I was brought up high. And the passage I just read, Saman from Jabesh Gilead, come and take Saul's dead, decapitated body down from the wall. By the way, if you're interested, this is one of the curses that the Lord outlined in Deuteronomy 28 if Israel rebelled against them, that such things would happen. So the men of Jabesh Gilead, they come and they take him down. And you might be wondering, well, who are these people? And again, I want to argue, if we take a step back to see what's happening in the big picture of the book, we'll remember that these were the people first delivered by Saul in 1 Samuel 11. So when Saul first became king, one of the first things he did was he saved and rescued these people. And you know what? They were still grateful to him. And as several commentators have pointed out, the reference to Jabez Gilead brings up a reminder of the glory of Saul's early reign. What it's doing is this. It's like a ski lift. It's taking us to the top of the slope. And instructively, it brings us to such heights to show us just how far the mighty have fallen. In other words, just as I can more clearly see the sharp drop of that black diamond run by being brought high, so too this reference of Jabez Gilead helps us see just how far Saul has fallen and more poignantly, the perils of pride. For as we've seen throughout our study of 1 Samuel, Saul is a self-absorbed man. He is prideful. Yet do you remember what God said through Hannah's song at the beginning of this book? In chapter 2, verses 6 and 7, Hannah sings this. Some have argued this is kind of almost like the outline, her song for the rest of the book. She says, The Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and raises up. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. And you know who God always, always, without exception, always brings low? The prideful. The death of Saul is another biblical example of the perils of pride. And there's a warning here for us, isn't there? You know what it is? I would argue it's the same warning that Hannah sang about just a few verses earlier in her song. Remember what she sings in verse 3? She says this. This is the warning. This is the, what were to heed. Talk no more so very proudly. 
Let not arrogance come from your mouth. For the Lord is a God of knowledge, and by him actions are weighed. Notice the exhortation is to renounce the pride in our lives. But here's the thing. We are often blind to our own pride. We can't see it in ourselves. So you know what that means? It means we need each other to speak the truth in love. But not only that, faith, please hear me, we not only need to speak the truth in love to one another, but arguably more important, we need to receive such correction with thankfulness, not defensiveness. Listen to what the author of Proverbs writes in chapter 9, verse 8. Listen to the marks of a wise person. Who wants to be wise? I do, and now you do as well. This is what a wise person does. Do not reprove a scoffer or he will hate you. Reprove a wise man and he will get defensive and make excuses. Reprove a wise man and he will get upset at you. Reprove a wise man and he will say, I don't appreciate your tone. Reprove a wise man and he will what? Love you. Do you express love to the person who corrects you? When your spouse points out a sin or something that you do wrong, do you express love to that person? The wise person does. So, so here's my homework for us as a church, and I'm going to ask you this next Sunday, Lord willing. Right? Here's my homework for each and every one of us, and that's this. Invite people to correct you. We're blind to our own pride. We can't see it. Others can. I want to encourage all of us to go up to a close friend, some friends here at church, perhaps in your community group, and I want you to go up to them and say, I want to give you the freedom to speak truth into my life. If you see me living contrary to God's word, if you see me being arrogant or prideful, if you see me doing something sinful, I invite you and I want you to speak truth into my life. Please correct me. And faith, when you do receive correction, let's be like the wise man and express thanks and love to that person rather than getting defensive. And then the last thing I just want to draw your attention to, I believe that this book shows us that God's word does not fail concerning the consequences of choices because notice the last verse. And they took their bones, Saul and his sons, and they buried them under the tamarisk tree in Jabez and fasted for seven days. Uh, those of you who know us know that my wife really loves to garden, and it's, it's a joy to see how she's really kind of passed that down to our kids, some more than others uh, like it. Um, but I'm impressed. My kids know all sorts of names about plants and flowers and bushes and stuff, uh, I, I, which I don't know. <laughs> I 
I have a hard time just even knowing the names of the trees in my own yard. However, there has been one type of tree that I've been remembering throughout our study of 1 Samuel, and that is a tamarisk tree. Notice it is under the tamarisk tree that Saul has been buried. Now think about this. The author didn't have to include that in there. Right? He didn't have to. He just said he was buried. But he intentionally says he was buried in the tamarisk tree. And I think that's no small detail. I believe the author is trying to drive home a point that choices have consequences. Tell me what you mean. Peter Lightheart says this. He says, The last time we saw Saul under tamarisk tree, he was holding a spear in his hand and complained that everyone was conspiring with David. That was in 1 Samuel 22. The place where he exercised his paranoid, self-destructive rule was a place where his body was buried. He ruled with the spear in his hand, and he died by the sword. Indeed, in 1 Samuel 17, David was offered armor and weapons, the same weapons used by the, the nations to fight Goliath. And what did David do? Did he accept that or did he decline? He declined. Now Saul dies by those very weapons. And notice his armor is brought into a temple of the Philistines. Again, letting us know that, that Saul was a king like the nations. And by way of application, I think this is a helpful reminder of what the Bible clearly teaches, friend, and that is you reap what you sow. God will not be mocked. Our choices do have consequences that sometimes may not be seen till much later. And I also just want to touch briefly on one more thing just to point out here. Saul was not cremated. Saul was buried. As several commentators have mentioned, his body was burned as a way of cleansing, but his bones remained, and the men buried him. And this is an example of why it's good and right for us as Christians to bury our Christian deceased loved ones. Because as we learn from our study of 1 Corinthians, our great hope and trusting in a resurrected Christ is that made like him, like him we rise. We see this pattern in Scripture. We're made like him. Faith, Saul's death, is a didactic death. And I believe it's meant to teach us that we're to heed God's word because it does not fail. In 1 Samuel 28, God promised the death of a king and it came to pass. Yet that is not the only time God has done that. In Scripture, we read that God also promised the death of another king. Yet this king would die not because of his sin, but because of our sin. And that king is the Lord Jesus Christ. When we take one more step back and consider what's happening in 1 Samuel in light of the overall story of the scriptures, we're reminded that in the opening chapters of the Bible, Adam and Eve, created in the image of God, sin when tempted by Satan. 
And consequently, we now, as sons and daughters of Adam and Eve, we're all under the curse and judgment of God. We are sinners by nature and by choice. And worse still, because of our sin, we are alienated from God and rightfully under his wrath. Yet right after Adam's sin, what do we read in Genesis 3.15? We read that God promised a deliverer. One would come from the seed of Eve who would crush the head of the serpent. And as we read the pages of Scripture, we're looking for this promised deliverer who will deliver us from our sins, this seed of the woman. And as we work our way through the Bible, we see a narrowing focus, don't we? We know it's going to come from Eve, but then in Genesis 12, we learn it's going to come from Abraham's line. Towards the end of Genesis, we learn that it will come from Abraham's line, and this person will be a king from the tribe of Judah. And then who do we meet in 1 Samuel 16 but a shepherd boy from the tribe of Judah who's been anointed with the Holy Spirit to be Israel's king. Yet as great as David was, he has failed in many ways, hasn't he? He is not the one who's going to rescue us ultimately from God for our sin. But as we're about to see in the next couple of weeks, in 2 Samuel 7, God makes it very clear that this promised deliverer this promised one who will crush the head of the servant and save us from our sins, that king will come from David's line. And who is that king? It's the Lord Jesus Christ, the word of God incarnate. Amen? Friend, please hear me. Our greatest problem is that we are under judgment from God for our sin. And let Saul's death be a reminder to you that God's word does not fail when it comes to future judgment. Because of our sin, we all are deserving of an eternity in hell for our transgressions. Yet the good news of the Bible is that Jesus Christ, this promised deliverer, lived the perfect life we failed to live. And then he died the death we are owed for our sin. You see, on the cross, you know what Jesus did? Jesus died to forgive idolatrous, prideful, poor decision makers like you and me. And then three days later, Christ rose from the dead, securing our salvation and justification for all who would believe in him and proving to the world who he claimed to be the Son of God. And friend, I close with this. Do you know this salvation? What are you relying on to free you from the guilt and burden of sin? Are you leaning in on your own morality and your own righteousness? Friend, that is but filthy rags. And you and I both know it's insufficient the only hope you have when you stand before God on judgment day and have to give an account for your idolatrous, prideful ways is to plead the blood of his son that that was sufficient to forgive you. Have you done that? If not, I would encourage you, let today be the day of salvation for you. Turn from relying on yourself and trust what Christ has done. And I would love to talk with you more about that if that's something you'd like to do after the service. But to my brothers and sisters in the Lord, 
You who know the risen Savior, let us be people who just don't know God's word, but heed it and live in light of it. Amen? Let's pray.